is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. An L.A. political institution, Mark Ridley Thomas, guilty, will go in depth. Also, good luck finding a good deal on a used car. And we'll be talking with King Charles. Well, maybe. We'll explain what we mean. And that's not me. No. I mean, because sometimes people refer to me that way. Well, those people obviously need some help. Yes. Yeah. But I, I can really take them for a ride. <laughs> we, uh, we start with the federal conviction of L.A. City Councilman Mark Ridley Thomas for bribery and conspiracy. With us now is Nima Romani, who is a president of West Coast Trial Lawyers, also a former federal prosecutor and former director of enforcement of the L.A. City Ethics Commission. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. So here's a guy, Mark Ridley Thomas, L.A. City Council, State Assembly, State Senate, County Board of Supervisors, back to the L.A. City Council. He's been on the political scene since I think it's 1991, maybe even earlier than that. What does this conviction say about him? And what message does it send to the people who voted for him all of those years? Today is a huge day in L.A. City and L.A. County history. I mean, we're talking about someone who is an icon of local politics here, not just him and his son. And for Ridley Thomas to be convicted of federal fraud charges and almost certainly going to be sentenced to prison, this is something that would have been unheard of just a few years ago. You know, as we have more of these investigations and we find out more things, there seems to be just this uh, smell of corruption over so much of uh, city and and county government. Is this indicative of more to come? I mean, we've already seen and heard quite a bit, not just convictions, but, you know, other allegations as well. Is there more to come? Oh, I believe that we're going to hear a lot more and see a lot more. This is probably just the beginning. Obviously, we've seen many other scandals in L.A. City Hall. We've seen issues with our our former sheriff, um, obviously other cities here in L.A. County. And one of the issues with living here, you have these public servants who are not making a whole lot of money, and there's a lot of opportunity for them, whether it's entitlements or public projects, or in this case, uh, government contracts, to make others a lot of money. So, you know, when you have public servants with their hand out and you have an aggressive district attorney's office, an aggressive public corruption section of the U.S. attorney's office, I think we're going to see a lot more of these investigations and indictments. You know, you mentioned uh, other scandals, other corruption scandals involving L.A. city and county government. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because, as you know, unlike, say, New York and Chicago and Boston, uh, the political structure, infrastructure in L.A. was deliberately designed to have weakened power, uh, presumably to head off the kinds of, of corrupt practices that over and over again we have seen in in this city and in this county. So what happened? What went wrong with that thinking? It was supposed to be more fail-safe. Well, on one hand, you could argue that there's more corruption, but on the other, you can say that more corruption is being rooted out, right? You know, so you have, you know, we talked about the Ethics Commission, and I was enforcement director of that 
is something that was created in the 90s of the LA City Police Commission. So, you know, folks are saying, well, you know, the police commission, uh, they're finding all this corruption and, you know, excessive force and other violations by LAPD. Well, the argument could be, well, this was always occurring, but for these watchdogs and prosecutors and inspector generals and agencies that are overseeing our elected officials and law enforcement for decades, this was probably happening and none of these folks were being held accountable. Uh, very quickly, uh, Karen Bass, uh, the mayor of L.A., uh, figures into this. Uh, the U.S. attorney said that uh, Karen Bass's USC social work degree was critical c- to this investigation. And there were uh, email exchanges referencing Karen Bass as well into this. As, uh, as far as you know, uh, what what more is being done to look into this? Or are we going to hear more about this down the road? I think this isn't the end of uh Karen Bass and the USC, uh, just as an institution. I mean, uh, Dean Flynn, uh, obviously slightly different, but um, there are emails, and she was a star witness in this case, uh, implicating Karen Bass. I'm not saying that she's a subject or target of any investigation, but um, it's certainly problematic from an optics perspective at best, um, and she may have criminal problems at worst. So, so things aren't looking good for the mayor right now. I'm curious about the uh, former dean at USC, who, of course, is pivotal to uh, this whole case with Mark Ridley Thomas. Part of her agreement uh, was apparently not to testify. Was that an unusual move, or is there a reason you think the prosecutors agreed to that? Because one would have thought she could have been a powerful witness. Well, the agreement didn't force her to testify, but it didn't specifically say that she wouldn't testify. And when you're a prosecutor and you're relying on cooperator testimony, one of the challenges you have is the defense is going to always argue that, well, this is a rat. Here's someone that is lying just to save her, save herself and get a reduced sentence. So whenever you structure an agreement like the U.S. Attorney's Office did and say, listen, we're going to give you an opportunity to plead guilty. But there's going to be no promises made on either side. And that allows the witness to get on the stand and Dean Flynn to testify, listen, I'm responsible. I'm guilty. I haven't been promised anything. Um, It makes for a much better witness than if you make those promises on the front end. And I do believe her testimony was critical. And we're still trying to get a sense of the jury verdict. But the the juror who has spoken out, the foreperson, said that $100,000 scheme to take money from the Ridley Thomas campaign and funnel it to Sebastian, his son, was really sort of critical in proving the the bribery scheme here. All right. And we are going to have uh, more coverage on this uh, all day today here on KNX. Uh, thank you, Nima Romani, president of the West Coast Trial Lawyers. Relations between the U.S. and Russia could be deteriorating even more. Russia arresting an American Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich, on espionage charges. Robert English is director of Central European Studies at USC and is a noted Russia expert. Robert, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. You know, I, I was reading before how, how this is the uh, the worst uh, episode since the uh, waning days of the Cold War when it was then the Soviet Union. and uh, But I wonder if it isn't worse, and I'll tell you very quickly why. During the ending phases of the Soviet Union, uh, I actually was doing a series of reports uh, for the New York Post in uh, Russia, Soviet Union, and uh, my visa wouldn't let me go out of Moscow more than I think it was 20 miles. 
But I ended up having some Russian friends smuggle me outside so that I can look at and talk to people in what amounts to the suburbs of Moscow. And in those days, the most I was really worried about, if caught, was being expelled from the Soviet Union. I really wasn't concerned that I would be arrested and charged with espionage. So I'm wondering if the situation now isn't actually worse. It is worse in precisely the way you described. This is uh, what's underway now is reminiscent of what I suspect was just before your time, namely the arrest of Nicholas Daniloff. He was a reporter for yeah. U.S. News and World Report, and that was more serious. He was thrown into that same KGB jail, La Forteva Prison, where Gershkovitz is right now. Um, we don't know how this will come out. Daniloff was held for a month. What was different? What was better, you know, you're absolutely right, is that it seemed like that was staged by the hardliners, by the KGB and the military, against the wishes of Gorbachev, who was starting at that time to try to improve relations with the West. And he worked hard to find a diplomatic solution to undo this while still saving face. And so Daniloff was released in a month. I have no doubt that this time it's being done at Putin's behest, not against his wishes, to intentionally aggravate and not alleviate relations. So, yeah, it's a lot worse. Yeah, everything does seem to be ramping up, and it and it would seem to some that Putin is playing some kind of uh, sick game here. He's going to nab as many uh, American or Western people as he can and hold them for ransom and, and try to get sanctions uh, undone or other people released. Is this tactic, if that is his tactic, going to work? Um. No, it won't work. I mean, the the immediate reaction in this country, in Europe, is outrage, is shock, is dismay, and no credibility for the, the charges that are to come, that he was engaged in some kind of espionage. I suspect, therefore, that it's more directed at the domestic audience, right? This is drumming up more anti-Western hysteria. See, even their journalists are spying on us. We're under siege. It's another attempt to distract from how badly the war is going and justify this confrontation, this uh, de deteriorating, degenerating relations with the West by saying, again, that it's our fault. Am I right in my thinking, uh, Robert, that for Gershkovich, this is likely to be a rather protracted uh, period of his life there because while it will most likely end in some sort of a swap deal with the U.S., the Russians, the current Russians, don't do that until after a trial and a conviction. At least that's been what they've been doing. And those trials can take a really long time. Yeah. We're, most recently, we have the case of Brittany Griner, uh, Paul Whelan, others held, held a long time under pretty nasty conditions. And Greiner, before her release, was sentenced and then dispatched to a penal colony. Um, that is no fun at all. That's putting it mildly. You know, those are labor camps. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Gershwitz could be in for a really nasty experience. And who knows if it doesn't last for six months, nine months, until some kind of ceasefire or settlement in this war. And that's nowhere on the horizon at the moment. All right, I want to share with you uh, something we got from the Committee to Protect Journalists. We reached out to them, tried to talk to somebody. They did uh, send us a statement, and it says this. Russia has crossed the Rubicon and sent a clear message to foreign correspondents that they will not be spared 
from the ongoing purge of the independent media in the country. Authorities must immediately and unconditionally release Evan Gershkovich, drop all charges against him, and let the media work freely and without fear of reprisal, unquote. Of course, that's not going to mean a thing to Putin, is it? No, it's um, it's an important message. And as I said, we're seeing solidarity among the democratic countries and our European allies. They have reporters there, too. On occasion, they have been subject to this, although most often the target is American journalists. Um, so I'm glad that all these human rights and media freedom groups are speaking out. But it's not going to help Gershkowicz. Um, that will play out for the reason, you know, exactly as we've said, he's a hostage and the war is going badly. And by the way, it might have been a matter of particular sensitivity that he has been recently reporting, Gershkovich that is, on the bad economic situation in Russia. And any time an investigation, a journalist goes anywhere near stories about how Russia is having trouble producing missiles, it's running out of munitions, they're you know dusting off old World War II era tanks or importing artillery from North Korea. That stuff makes them apoplectic. And um, in fact, in their strange definition, that's kind of a state secret. So reporting on stuff that's absolutely open source, as long as it has any connection to their you know their difficult military situation, um, just drives them crazy. And they can slap on this tag of classified and then turn it into an espionage case. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Robert English, Director of Central European Studies at USC. And still ahead, we are going to look into why fewer people are watching CNN and other cable news outlets. And we will talk to Britain's King Charles. Well, not actually, but you may have a hard time Really figuring that out, and we'll tell you why. Uh, right now, though, it was not very long ago that uh, used car prices shot up. Then they went back down, and now they're up again. It's like uh, bouncing on a spring. Uh, Ivan Drury, a senior manager of insights for Edmunds.com, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Rob Charles, how are you doing? So uh, why are the prices uh, going on used cars going back up? You know, we're starting to see a little bit of that seasonality. Typically, prices tend to go up in that first to second quarter transition. You know, people get their tax returns. Funny enough, car shopping becomes kind of a thing, and especially used cars. If you kind of look at that average transaction price and the down payment on a used car, it kind of correlates towards what you see for tax returns. So we do know that there is a bump in demand. The thing is, our supply constraints, they are still there when it comes to used vehicles. There's not a lot of off-lease options. You know, people are holding on to a lease or they're buying out a lease. At the same time, the rental agencies, which provide a lot of one- and two-year-old, you know, used vehicles into the market, they're just not there. You know, they've had a deficiency themselves on new acquisitions, so they can't supply the used market either. So what are we talking about on average, Ivan, in terms of what would it cost? You know, obviously it depends on the car, but on average, what would it cost to buy a, a pretty good uh, well, I guess I'm, I'm going to distinguish between just a conventional used car and a pre-certified used car, which usually means it's more expensive because it comes with a warranty and all that other stuff. No, actually, you make a really good distinction. There are very different classes of used cars. When you talk about a certified pre-owned vehicle, you're talking about something that has an extended warranty from the automaker. The dealer's done its 150, 180-point inspection. There's so many caveats to a CPO actually becoming one. You know, it's like off-lease car or somebody turned in a two-year-old trade-in. Those vehicles always command a premium. I'd expect to pay between 1500 to 3000 depending on the brand. 
versus just a standard used car because it's been inspected. It's got those guarantees. You can even find, funny enough, on CPO vehicles, sometimes there's incentives. You'll find they have low APR offers, even cash back. It's almost like a new car. And that's what the, the automaker is trying to sell you on is that this is such a good used car. It's almost new. Now, at the same time, you might be looking at five to seven-year-old vehicles. Those are still expensive, though. You're talking about like a five-year-old car on average is still $26,000. Seven-year-old cars, 20K. Wait, $20,000 for a seven-year-old car. Yes. So that's the stuff that will blow your mind. If you're buying, if you're selling or trading in, this is all great news, right? You still have a lot of trade-in value far more than you ever but, normally would have. But doesn't that mean then that if if you're paying 20 grand say for a 7-year-old car, how much more are new cars now costing? Well, new car average transaction price is 48. So, you're going less than half, but at the same time think about the loan. If you're taking out a loan on a 7-year-old car, how old is it going to be when you realistically are going to pay it off? And that's where it gets a little bit trickier, right? So, I think that for people when it comes to financing it looking at that apr that they might get hit with um you know some of the older vehicles they have great you know dollar amounts attached to them but they also come with some interest rates that can make them you know not feasible for some yeah and speaking of the loans i know some people have bought like a three or four year old car and they got six year loan i mean Mm -hmm. six years to pay on a car that's already three or four years old Precisely. That's actually the norm. We're looking at about 70 to 71 months on average for your typical used car. And, you know, like you say, once you look at how many miles it already has on it, you factor in miles till you have the vehicle paid off, or is this something just to hold you over for a year or two until new inventory gets to the level that you'd prefer, where you can have the color and the selection and the price that you like on new. So I think for some people, they really are trying to time it so that they're only having a a short ownership period versus driving to the wheels fall off. Mm. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Ivan Drury, Senior Manager of Insights for Edmunds.com. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If you're a little older, you might remember uh, always uh, going to CNN to get the latest news. It was the source for a long time for national and international news for years and years. And for full disclosure, used to be my employer yeah, for okay. years and years. Uh, but that was then. Now its ratings have been in a free fall, along with other, we should point out, cable news channels. Jane Hall is a professor in the School of Communication at American University and author of Politics in the Media, Intersections and New Directions. Jane, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you guys. So what happened? Uh, not only CNN, uh, but also Fox News, which has been the, the leader for a good number of years now in terms of cable news. Their ratings are down. Uh, MSNBC overall, their ratings are down. Why? Well, you know, it's, uh, this was quite a news, quite a news period. Uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, there have been the midterm elections. The fact that these ratings are down, it's it's not good, obviously, for CNN in particular, because they are experimenting with the idea that they want to go back to the time that you probably were employed uh, when yeah. it was more straight <laughs> news coverage and when they used to joke and say that the news was the star. I mean, they came away from saying that it was only news. I mean, you have to have people who are anchors that people want to watch. You all know that better than anybody and listen to. And they have been experimenting, and this new approach, I think, will take some time. 
They are in the process, reportedly, of signing Gail King from CBS and maybe Charles Barkley for a new show. Uh, while they are experimenting with this, their ratings with with have been have been declining. Also, you have to say that Donald Trump has been the ratings magnet as much as he beat up on the news media, uh, and as much as people would say that or Trump supporters that they beat back at him. He has been a ratings magnet, and I think that uh, you will see more. You will see more of reporting on Donald Trump, uh, in part because he's newsworthy, and also I think because people are trying to figure out how to get back uh, what's 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 in something of a free fall. I mean, I think it's a little extreme to say it won't come back because they are experimenting and we've just come off a very, very heavy news time. People watch CNN and Fox and uh, MSNBC during the, the invasion of Ukraine. They're still on that story, particularly CNN. So I don't want to count them out. Uh, I think that they do have an issue. Are people really going to watch great news today? Yeah, That's you know, really, I, really the question. I was going to ask you that because I wonder if that world, as far as cable is concerned, has passed going back to just straight news. Only because as the country has become more divided and everybody retreats into their own media bubble, I'm a right winger, so I'm going to watch these outlets, or I'm a left winger, I'm going to only going to watch these outlets, and I don't want to hear from the other side. So they want people to feed back into their their ecosystem, if you will. So the idea of we're going to be in the middle and straight news is is maybe a difficult sell. Well, at the same time, you've got Chris Licht trying to develop a show with Bill Maher, who is not news. He is a commentator. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think you make such a good point. The people who watch Fox are incredibly loyal to Fox, and they're loyal to Fox only. You know, they are they are there. They are a political force, and they are even staying. Fox's ratings are staying high while they're in the midst of a very embarrassing, potentially lawsuit. Certainly, the the fact that they were not telling the truth to their to their listeners, uh, and even how their anchors felt about uh, January 6th. Their ratings are staying up there, and MSNBC is also challenged right now. CNN is the one that's been the most traditional. You know, MSNBC was conceived as the anti-Fox. I think they would say that's not where they are today, but they are a more liberal network. So coming down the middle, uh, to your point, I think it's more of a challenge. They CNN executives feel that this is something that they need to be patient with, and when a big news story breaks, people do tend to go to CNN. My students go to CNN, you know, when there's breaking news. Well, let me let, let me throw out something on on the table for for brief discussion anyway. Uh, that maybe is is uh, antithetical to most of us in the so-called straight news business, and maybe maybe that experiment and it has been an experiment uh, having non-opinion news. In this country, because as you know, uh, Jane, going back in American history, you know, early newspapers were all basically political party organs and each mm-hmm. newspaper had its own political slant. And if you go to present day, you know, the United Kingdom, every one of their newspapers, some are to the left, some are to the right. Uh, the BBC is even accused of being pretty much a pro-government type you know, news organization. Then you've got right wing and left wing news channels in the U.K., Maybe this experiment uh, just didn't work. Oh, my goodness. I hope you're not. 
I hope you're not forecasting the future. I'm a huge fan, and I don't disagree with you. I think we are in, in cable in particular. I think we do have to isolate cable, you know, because the New York Times, I mean, whatever you think, you may think they have a bias, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, other national newspapers are doing quite well. But opinion in print, online, and on cable in particular is really, is really, really selling. And I do wonder how this is all going to play out. If Fox can maintain its viewership in the midst of what they are, they are being accused of, then they're, they're, those people are unshakable. You know, it, it just, it really does concern me. And it is, it is a question. I will tell you one bright light. Mm-hmm. All three of the broadcast network evening newscasts have done quite well. Uh, and even with diminished ratings, these cable networks are still making money. Yeah. And Fox is making a boatload of money. Well, so, with Fox, it may know, not be a question of ratings at some point, because if these lawsuits don't go their way, it could be a question of not ratings but money, and their pockets yeah. may be emptied substantially. Yeah, they they very well may. Yeah. I mean, I you know I don't know if we're going to see a settlement in that lawsuit or how that's going to play out. I mean, that's full of a lot of ironies about defending yeah, right. They're defending free freedom of the press. You know, <laughs> right. That's a whole other story. Thank you so much, uh, Jane Hall, professor of the uh, School of Communication at American University. Of course, I'm referring to the uh, Dominion lawsuits yes. against Fox, but not just Dominion, but now the other uh, company is going to be going after them with a huge lawsuit as well. Well, uh, we've been teasing this throughout our show. We are now going to talk to King Charles III. Well, not actually. Uh, you know, that's the oh, question. Do we have to stand oh, uh, I don't know. for King well, Charles? Uh, it's actually, this, Hello. Is, this is King Charles, Hello, right? how are you? Hello, how are you all? God there bless you. Go. Yes, I, I've been in Germany all day in Berlin. But I must <laughs> say, it's absolutely marvelous to speak to you all and all your fine listeners. Uh, sir, in Los do, Angeles. Do we have Mar- to stand or curtsy uh, when you're addressing us? Well, if your chat one doesn't curtsy, you know, it's sort of that sort of, you know. <laughs> one would normally stand, but on these occasions. <laughs> do we refer to you what as... What time is it over there? Here, it's uh, well, it's almost a 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it'll oh be almost gosh. 9 o'clock at night when they repeat this. Mm-hmm. Will it? Will it? God gosh. Well, it's quarter to 10 in the evening here in the U.K., so Mom's. do people refer to you as your Royal Charlesness, or what do they call you? <laughs> no, it used to be His Royal Highness. Yes. Now it's uh, His Majesty. His Majesty. That's what one calls one. His Majesty. All right. Charles III. The person we're speaking with is uh, one of the uh, impersonators. He does a lot of these, but uh, he's got a lot of popularity right now because of Charles' coronation coming up in May. Uh, his name is Guy Engel with us from the U.K. He's been in, uh, how long have you been doing your impersonation of Charles? Um, well, this is my real voice now. Um, I started in TV, did some TV in the U.K. in 1987, and then... I the, then the lookalike industry really started kicking off in about 1990. There was a lady who was called um, Jeanette Charles who was in one of the silly films that I've been involved in. Well, um, you know, Naked Gun and Airplane, all those things. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I played to lookalike agencies at the time. None of them were interested in me. However. <laughs> I kicked the door down, so to speak, and then uh, I started getting work. But I've always been playing second fiddle to Her Majesty until, unfortunately, our own 
Queen passed away last year, then it's been going absolutely ridiculous. You know, I'm so busy. It's amazing. What do you have to do physically to look as much as possible like King Charles? Well, um, I put a hairpiece on. I put makeup on. I try and get the costume exactly right. I cannot afford the suits that he wears, but I have something very similar. I've got the uniforms. I've got all the bits and bobs and stuff that I have sent, that I've purchased. I've had uh, his ceremonial uniform made. So, yeah, I try to get the attention to detail about right. So, so, so one of, can be sort of convincing. Speaking know. of detail, what's the age difference between you and, and King Charles? Well, actually, I'm 62, and his, uh, his Majesty is actually 74. So I put quite a lot of makeup on. But it's just, it's basically acting. You know, you see, people see movies and they don't realise that actually for many years, Sean Connery had hardly any hair. And yet you see him in those Bond films and all that. And <laughs> it was a wig you know, a hairpiece or whatever. Guy, did you ever meet King Charles? I came very close to meeting him. Some years ago, I was at an event, which was at, uh, one of um, His Royal Highness's last polo tournaments when he was playing the Argentinian polo team when there was Wills and Harry playing. And I was actually, and he knew about this because I had to turn up at the event in the marquee where all the people were and deliver a speech as, King, as, as Prince Charles. And later on, I watched him play the polo. And afterwards, he was with his security people. And the chap said, that fellow over there did an impression. And he said, well, I didn't know. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been allowed to do it. <laughs> and then the, the security man came over and said, well, tell him. He said, tell that fella. Good luck to him. One has to earn a living. <laughs> so there you go. What One do you has do, to earn a living. Uh, what do you do uh, to, to capture uh, King Charles' voice? You know, impersonators, uh, not only just the physical, the, the, they, they have a trick that they do to get into the physical character, but uh, a lot of voice uh, characterizations come from like a trick or a gimmick that you have to get yourself into his voice. What do you do? Actually, I have to pull a similar expression to his face to get, so one can sort of get the voice. You know, it just sort of happens. It's like I, I used to do impressions of all sorts. People like um, Billy Connolly. You know, women, how are you now? You know, how are you? No, no, that, you know. It's just, uh, and you just work on it and hopefully listen to, record yourself. I record myself lots and lots and lots. I've been watching him today when I've been working in Germany, delivering his speech to the, in, in Berlin. And he, he spoke in, German, so I've got to learn a bit of German, I suppose. But, but besides, the only German I can say is "Ich liebe dich," which means "I love you." <laughs> Guy, besides the, getting the voice as close as you can, what is the essence of of King Charles that that makes him King Charles, and that you, as an impersonator, need to try to capture? Well, I think when one looks at him when he's out and about, it's his mannerisms. He has a hand in the pocket. He plays around with his cufflinks, the little ring on his left pinky finger. He's always playing with that. He's always, you know, hand in the pocket. And you just study, I just look at his mannerisms and then try and copy them. And after a while, if you keep working at it, when one uh, gets the, the suit on, you can sort of try and turn into him. You know, and I did a do at Fort Mason's last year in London. In the, one of the restaurants at the top. And all the guests in that restaurant were from Asia. And they introduced me very kindly as 
King Charles III, I walked in, I got my military uniform, and they all stood up. And, you know, I think for a few minutes they thought it was King Charles. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm doing a good job. <laughs> That's how you know it's working. Uh, Mr. Uh, right. Guy Ingle, thank you so much for joining us from the UK today. He does, uh, does uh, what it sounds like, at any rate, uh, an excellent King Charles. And I felt like we didn't have to stand and, and, and curse you. And not, I'm not good with the curtsying. I, I feel now closer to right. King Charles than I've ever felt before. It, me as well. And I never felt close. Right. Now I feel closer. This has been KX in depth. That's going to do it for today. We'll be back tomorrow.